Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Caleb N. Griffin, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas School of Law. Last month, Professor Griffin testified before the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs at a hearing entitled Considering the Index Fund Voting Process. Welcome, Professor Griffin. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, Professor, the Senate Banking Committee hearing you testified at last month was largely about a bill introduced by Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska entitled the Investor Democracy is Expected Act, or the short name, the Index Act. So let's begin by providing our listeners with an overview of the key provisions of the Index Act as you see it. At a basic level, the Index Act is a response to the concentration of power in the largest asset managers. So the top three fund managers dwarf virtually all the other players in the corporate governance world. They're currently voting about a quarter of the shares at the largest public companies. That's expected to grow to about 34% in the next five years, and then to probably greater than 40% in the following decade. So some very significant size already, and then continued growth is expected. So the status quo of index fund voting is basically that these fund managers and others generate instructions on how the shares they control should be voted, generally in the form of what are called proxy voting guidelines. And they then apply those instructions or guidelines to firm level proxy votes. The Index Act would essentially allow investors to set their own voting instructions or guidelines, and the fund would then apply the investors' instructions to firm level votes. Now, I read the text of the act as general enough to permit a number of different methods of translating investors' voting instructions into these firm level votes. And there are two approaches that I particularly like. One is what I call categorical or semi-specific voting, and the second is vote outsourcing. So in the first, the categorical or semi-specific version, investors are going to provide voting instructions on common categories of topics. So perhaps investors would be able to specify that every time a proposal about disclosing political spending comes up, uh, vote yes or vote no, depending on your preference, at each firm where that question arises. The second method is vote outsourcing, and that means an investor's voting instructions could simply be to vote their shares in alignment with whatever party they select. Perhaps it could be the portfolio company's management, perhaps it could be the advisor of an index fund, or even a third party, perhaps, that provides voting recommendations. And I think this is the easiest approach for individual investors, since it requires making just one single decision. Professor, in his testimony for the Senate Banking Committee, Senator Sullivan stated, quote, that the impetus for this legislation was due to my ongoing frustrations with America's largest banks and insurance companies blackballing oil and gas development, specifically in my state, while at the same time eagerly doing business in China and propping up CCP, unquote. So that was the senator's impetus for the legislation. What's your impetus for supporting the Index Act? Well, first, I think it would be a mistake to characterize all asset managers as working towards certain political goals 
in any sort of a stable or predictable way. We've seen their voting behaviors change substantially in a relatively short period of time. And I think that instability is likely to continue without some sort of increased regulation in this area. But more broadly, I don't view pass-through voting as a partisan issue. I think promoting shared governance and democratic accountability is the right choice regardless of partisan considerations. And so I approach this not as a political question, but as an institutional design issue. We're looking at power and accountability in our corporate governance system. And we have a choice as to whether corporate governance should essentially be run by a handful of employees at three financial institutions, or whether it should be shaped democratically by the input of millions of American investors and savers. And I think that the more legitimate approach is the latter. And that's why I support passive voting. So, Professor, one of the criticisms of the Index Act that was raised at the hearing was that the cost of implementing the act, particularly given the complexity of the U.S. proxy voting system, would exceed the benefits of implementing the act, in part because retail investors and index funds are unlikely to vote a proxy, even if given the opportunity. So what's your reaction to that criticism of the Index Act? Well, first, I think a lot of the arguments that individual investors won't vote assume a granular or sometimes called a pure pass-through voting system. And that's where each individual investor would be required to make several thousand decisions on individual ballot items uh, for firm-level questions. But I think those arguments are relatively weak when you look at something like vote outsourcing, for instance, which, as we discussed earlier, requires investors to make just one single decision about who should cast their votes. Second, I would say that cost is in many ways dependent on both the level of precision that we require and the liability standard that we impose. And I believe that we should impose a relatively low precision requirement and a relatively light liability standard. So with respect to the precision requirement, we have the question of how accurately we should require asset managers to translate investors' voting instructions into firm-level votes. And as Professor Coates mentioned in his testimony, we're only just this year going to have some level of full end-to-end -end vote confirmation in the proxy voting space. And in that light, we should be realistic about the level of precision we can expect when translating fund investors' voting instructions into actual firm level votes. And that leads us to liability standards. What happens if an asset manager falls short of the precision requirement in some respect? I believe that liability standards here should be relatively light. And I think something like reasonable efforts uh, or a good faith effort standard could be appropriate. Perhaps even sort of a care mark analogy, imposing liability only where there's been a systematic and sustained failure to adhere to investor input. Most importantly, this is the lowest cost regulatory proposal on the table. I think that other solutions uh, like antitrust remedies, such as breaking up the big three index funds or capping fund complexes at a specific size of asset center management would be far more costly for investors. So I think that pass-through voting does the best job of essentially any regulatory proposal on this issue of preserving the economies of scale at the large asset managers. Professor, a second criticism of the Index Act that was raised at the hearing was that by effectively reducing the proxy voting of index funds, the act would increase 
the voting power of activist hedge funds. What's your reaction to that criticism of the index app? I think that's possible, but there are counter arguments as well. Uh, so currently to win most corporate contests, activist hedge funds essentially have to lobby the largest asset managers to vote in line with what they're advocating. And if they succeed in persuading the big three, they usually win. And if they fail, they usually lose. So if this bill reduces the concentration of power in the hands of the largest asset managers, activist funds may actually have a more difficult time assembling the necessary coalition in what would be a more fragmented corporate governance environment. You could also address this concern with some relatively minor changes to the bill. One change would be to allow funds to continue voting uninstructed shares. So for instance, BlackRock would still offer pass-through voting, but it would essentially preserve the status quo for shares where fund investors didn't provide any voting instructions. Another option would be to require funds to mirror the voting, not of shareholders at the firm level, but of other investors at the fund level. So if, say, 30% of investors didn't craft any voting instructions, those votes would be split proportionally according to the voting patterns of participating investors. So to the extent I think that there may be some concerns about a potential power vacuum, I think either of those approaches could address that issue quite well. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guests, Caleb and Griffin, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding the issues discussed in this episode or CII's related policies or positions, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.